Hello, and welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations and their merger into the AFL-CIO of today. Uh, my name is Rob, and uh, yeah, welcome. Indeed. Hi, I'm Trisha. Welcome to the show. Rob, can you turn the tunes down just a bit? They're kind of drowning you out. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, I guess, uh, happy Wednesday, everybody. Um, if you missed it, yesterday we did our first part of our Revolutionary Left Book Club series on the Communist Manifesto. Um, Monday, we had a pretty wonderful uh, current events stream. And um, I know we posted it late, but yesterday I also posted uh, last week's uh, Black Panther Party stream. So if you've got some stuff to catch up on, then, you know, feel free to take the time to do it. And um, as for upcoming stuff, tomorrow we'll have part 10 of our Black Panther Party series. And uh, then we'll be back next Monday, Tuesday, probably Wednesday and Thursday. All right, trying to build that content. Getting a decent amount of stuff knocked out. Yeah, and uh, we're slowly picking away at revamping the website. Um, I am in the process of building an actual library in there where we will have, you know, divided into categories and organized maybe chronologically, I don't know, um, with both options for podcast pieces and videos, but uh, that's been a slow progress so far, so... We'll see when it gets All right. Just keeps making the visual image flash in my head of Slack and how the shit pops up saying Dean wants you to learn WordPress. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> I need to. Oh, man. All right. I guess we should just dive right in. The American Federation oh, yeah. of Label. 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 <laughs> The American Federation of Labor was a national federation of labor unions in the U.S. founded in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, something decent came out of Ohio. Who would have thought? Oh, shit. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> in December 1886, by an alliance of craft unions disaffected from the Knights of Labor, a national labor union. Samuel Gompers of the Cigar Makers International Union was elected president at its founding convention and re-elected every year except one until his death in 1924. The AFL was the largest union grouping in the United States for the first half of the 20th century, even after the creation of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, by unions which were expelled by the AFL in 1935 over its opposition to industrial unionism. 
The Federation was founded and dominated by craft unions throughout its first 50 years, after which many craft union affiliates turned to organizing on an industrial union basis to meet the challenge from the CIO in the 1940s. In 1955, the AFL merged with the CIO to create the AFL-CIO, which has comprised the longest lasting and most influential labor federation in the United States to this day. The American Federation of Labor was organized as an association of trade unions in 1886. The organization emerged from a dispute with the Knights of Labor organization in which the leadership of that organization solicited locals of various craft unions to withdraw from their international organizations and to affiliate with the Knights of Labor directly. An action which would have taken funds from the various unions and enriched the Knights of Labor's coffers. The Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions also merged into what would become the AFL. One of the organizations embroiled in this controversy was the Cigar Makers International Union, the CMIU, um, a group committed or subject to competition from a dual union, a rival progressive cigar makers union organized by members suspended or expelled by the CMIU. The two cigar unions competed with one another in signing contracts with various cigar manufacturers who were at this time combining themselves into manufacturers associations of their own in New York City, Detroit, Cincinnati, Chicago, and Milwaukee. In January 18, whoa. In, in January 1886, the Cigar Manufacturers Association in New York City announced a 20% wage cut in factories around the city. The Cigar Makers International Union refused to accept the cut and 6,000 of its members and 19 factories were locked out by the owners. A strike lasting four weeks ensued. Just when it appeared that the strike might be won, the New York District Assembly of the Knights of Labor leaped into the breach, offering to settle with the 19 factories at a lower wage scale than that proposed by the CMIU, so long as only the Progressive Cigar Makers Union was employed. The leadership of the CMIU was enraged and demanded that the New York District Assembly be investigated and punished by the national officials of the Knights of Labor. The committee of investigation was controlled by individuals friendly to the New York District Assembly, however, and the latter was exonerated. The American Federation of Labor was thus originally formed as an alliance of craft unions outside the Knights of Labor as a means of defending themselves against this and similar incursions. On April 25, 1886, a circular letter was issued by Adolf Strasser of the Cigar Makers and P.J. McGuire of the Carpenters, addressed to all national trade unions and calling for their attendance of a conference in Philadelphia on May 18th. The call stated that an element of the Knights of Labor was doing malicious work and causing incalculable mischief by arousing antagonisms and dissensions in the labor movement. The call was signed by Strasser and McGuire, uh, along with the representatives of the granite cutters, the iron molders, and the Secretary of the Federation of Trades of North America, a forerunner of the AFL founded in 1881. 
43 invitations were mailed, which drew the attendance of 20 delegates and letters of approval from 12 other unions. At this preliminary gathering held in Donaldson Hall on the corner of Broad and Filbert Streets, the Knights of Labor was charged with conspiring with anti-union bosses to provide labor at below going union rates, with making use of individuals who had crossed picket lines or defaulted on payment of union dues. The body authored a treaty to be presented to the forthcoming May 24th, 1886 convention of the Knights of Labor, which demanded that they cease attempting to organize members of international unions into their own assemblies without permission of the unions involved and that the Knights of Labor organizers violating this, pro this provision uh, should suffer immediate suspension. Sounds like a lot of bureaucratic bullshit to be real about yeah. it. Yes, indeed. Um, for its part, the Knights of Labor considered the demand for the parceling of the labor movement into narrow craft-based fiefdoms. Fiefdoms? Fiefdoms, I think. To be anathema, a violation of the principle of solidarity of all workers across craft lines. Negotiations with the dissident craft unions were nipped in the bud by the governing General Assembly of the Knights of Labor. However, with the organization's Grandmaster work, uh, Workman, Terence V. Powderly, that should seem like a familiar name from the Knights of Labor piece, yeah. um, refusing to enter into serious discussions on the matter. The actions of the New York District Assembly of the Knights of Labor were upheld. So just to remind everybody, Terence Powderly was the anti-strike guy that was in charge of the Knights of Labor, so it's understandable where this tension came from. Right. Um, convinced that no accommodation with the leadership of the Knights of Labor was possible, the heads of the five labor organizations which issued the call for April 1886 uh, conference issued a new call for a convention to be held on December 8, 1886 in Columbus, Ohio in order to construct an American Federation of Alliance of all national and international trade unions. 42 delegates representing 13 national unions and various other local labor organizations responded to the call, agreeing to form themselves into an American Federation of Labor. Revenue for the new organization was to be raised on the basis of a per capita tax of its member organization set at the rate of one half cent per member per month or six cents per year. Wow. That was cheap. Right. <laughs> well, in oh. today's money. <laughs> right. right, fair. Back then, that had a lot of spending power. <laughs> fair. Governance of the organization was to be by annual conventions, with one delegate uh, allocated for every 4,000 members of each affiliated union. I mean, I feel like that could have been a better ratio, but anyway. The founding convention voted to make the president of the new federation a full-time official at a salary of $1,000 per year. Um, and Samuel Gompers of the Cigar Makers International Union was elected to the position. Gompers would ultimately be re-elected re to the position by annual conventions of the organization for every year minus one until his death nearly four decades later. That's some pretty good staying power. Right? He must have totally had their support and been doing the right shit to hold it for that long. 
Wow. Right. <laughs> uh, although the, the founding convention of the AFL had authorized the establishment of a publication for the new organization, Gompers made use of the existing labor press to generate support for the position of the craft unions against the Knights of Labor. Powerful opinion makers of the American labor movement, such as the Philadelphia Toxin, uh, Haverhill Labor, the Brooklyn Labor Press, and the Denver Labor Inquirer, granted Gompers space in their pages, in which he made the case for the unions against the attacks of employers, quote, all too often aided by the Knights of Labor. And that really shows uh, what kind of uh, reactionary organization the Knights of Labor was under Powderly, and that's exactly why they disintegrated right. under Powderly. Mm-hmm. Uh, headway was made in the form of endorsement by various local labor bodies. Some assemblies of the Knights of Labor supported the cigar maker's position and de uh, departed the organization. Uh, as I was just saying, they disintegrated. <laughs> um, <laughs> In Baltimore, 30 locals left the organization, while the membership of the Knights in Chicago fell from 25,000 in 1886 to just 3,500 in 1887. Factional warfare broke done. out. Yeah, right. <laughs> Factional warfare broke out in the Knights of Labor, with Terence Powderly blaming the organization's travails on radicals in its ranks, while those opposing Powderly called for an end to a perceived <coughs> democratic leadership. That's so, what I would call it too. <laughs> yeah, you know, right, right, right. And uh, I mean, killed. Terrence Powderly blaming the organization's problems on radicals is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, but all those radicals, you know, went to the AFL, right, <laughs> to continue <laughs> to actually fight for some workers' rights. <laughs> right. Uh, in oh in, yeah, it's your turn. My bad. In the face of the steady disintegration of its rival. The fledgling American Federation of Labor struggled to maintain itself, with the group showing very slow and incremental growth in its first years, only cracking the 250,000 member mark in 1892. The group from the outset concentrated upon the income and working conditions of its membership as its almost sole focus. The AFL's founding convention declaring quote, higher wages and a shorter workday to be preliminary steps towards great and accompanying move improvements in the condition of the working people. Participation in partisan politics was avoided as inherently divisive, and the group's constitution was structured to prevent the admission of political parties as affiliates. I just want to read that last line over again. Participation in partisan politics was avoided as inherently divisive and the group's constitution was structured to prevent the admission of political parties as affiliates. Are you listening, AFL-CIO of today? Right. Because when you let that stuff distract you away from focusing on the rights of the workers, then you're fucking up. Right. Like, I mean, unions should be holding politicians' feet to the fire regardless of party not playing mm -hmm. party politics which we all know the AFC right. uh, the AFL-CIO is very guilty of for the last 30 years at least vote blue no matter yeah. who it'll get better yay yeah <laughs> I'm sorry until you get to upper management that's <laughs> that's all the people who probably wear hourly on their shoulder you know the salaried ones probably tend to vote a lot more republican leaning 
Um, This fundamentally conservative, pure and simple approach uh, limited the AFL to matters pertaining to working conditions and rates of pay, relegating political goals to its allies in the political sphere. The Federation favored pursuit of workers' immediate demands rather than challenging the property rights of owners um, and took a pragmatic view of politics, which favored tactical support for particular politicians over formation of a party devoted to workers' interests. Um, which, I mean, I, I can see the benefits of that uh, for sure, um, especially for a fledgling organization. You know, like, I, I mean, if somebody is fighting for what you, um, as a union, agree with, then that's one thing. But, you know, you're not bringing these politicians to your union meetings and, like, giving them influence in the union. And I think that that's what that was designed to do, was to prevent, you know, unions from being a shill for a political party right because as as you can even see there that absolutely does create that divisiveness that they wanted to prevent because now look at what's happening right now just even across the board when it comes to the seldom few manufacturing jobs we do have here left today you've got them playing party politics where the upper management is voting one way and the hourly people voting another way instead of them coming together and actually you know putting like you said the feet of both sides of politicians you know to the fire both republicans and democrats like and when you get down to it, it this next part right here really like summed that up there about um them being so pro-capitalism that goes to support what we've already been saying before about either way to really get on the left that starts with anti-capitalism so let's not pretend like democrats and republicans are too far apart (laughs) right but it caused divisiveness amongst those workers where they're no longer you know working together for everyone's benefit. We see shit happening all the time with people fucking each other on contracts. Anyway, I digress. It's a frustrating yeah. point. Um, yeah. But this this next line is exactly why I've always been more of a fan of the IWW uh, as opposed yeah. to a big mainstream union like the AFL-CIO. The AFL's leadership believed the expansion of the capitalist system was seen as the path to betterment of labor, an orientation making it possible for the AFL to present itself as what one historian has called, quote, the conservative alternative to working class radicalism. And Um, what that says to me is Stockholm syndrome of the working class. Yeah. That... Mm-mm. That's exactly what they're trying to avoid when they're setting up those rules. Anyway, the AFL faced its first major reversal when employers launched an open shop movement in 1903, designed to drive unions out of construction, mining, longshore, and other industries. 
Membership in the AFL's affiliated unions declined between 1904 and 1914 in the face of this uh, concerted anti-union drive, which made effective use of legal injunctions against strikes, court rulings given force when backed with the armed might of the state. At its November 1907 convention in Norfolk, Virginia, the AFL founded the future North America's Building Trades Unions as Department of Building Trades. So I want to point out, though, uh, in relation to the IWW and where this all fits into the, the grand American labor story, is uh, 1904 is when this anti-union drive started. And you want to know when the IWW formed? Uh, 1905. Yeah. Um, and I think that says a lot uh, about where the union stood even early on as uh, a, a form of working class solidarity. Ever the pragmatist, Gompers argued that labor should, quote, reward its friends and punish its enemies in both major parties. However, in the 1900s decade, the two parties began to realign with the main faction of the Republican Party coming to identify with the interests of banks and manufacturers, while a substantial portion of the rival, rival Democratic Party took a more labor-friendly position. While not precluding its members from belonging to the Socialist Party or working with its members, the AFL traditionally refused to pursue the tactic of independent political action by the workers in the form of the existing Socialist Party or the establishment of a new Labor Party. After 1908, um, the organization's tie to the Democratic Party grew increasingly strong. So just to sum that up, as the Socialist Party was growing and gaining public support, uh, the AFL straight up avoided it. Right. Um, I mean, and it, it refused to uh, pursue independent political action by the workers in the Socialist Party. Like, I think that says an, uh, another, I think that's another thing that speaks volumes. Right. Volumes. Absolutely. Jesus, yes. I can't talk to Plural. <laughs> smoke another one? Was that an excellent smoke break? <laughs> it's all good. Mine was too, but you know. Anywho. Uh, <laughs> some unions within the AFL helped form and participated in the National Civic Federation. The National Civic Federation was formed by several progressive employers who sought to avoid labor disputes by fostering collective bargaining and, quote, responsible unionism. Uh, labor's participation in the Federation at first tentative created internal division within the AFL socialists who believed the only way to help workers was to remove large industry from private ownership, i.e. seize the means of production that sounds familiar right. <laughs> denounce labor's efforts at cooperation with the capitalists at the national civic federation again marxist we're getting somewhere but the afl nonetheless continued its association with the group which declined in importance as the decade of the 1910s drew to a close which i i mean i i also want to point out you know like what was going on, uh, the AFL 
obviously being pro-capitalism was pro-World War One, and the Socialist Party was like, fuck no. Right. Um, but that speaks volumes there too, as far as like, they were more interested in the profit that they could make from war by converting production lines over to producing shit for warfare instead of for like cars. We saw a lot of that around here. The GM plant around the corner produced tanks, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, um, but anyway, so um, I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit, not by much. I mean, honestly, it's the same ballpark time frame we're talking about. But World War One, speaking of, towards the beginning of World War One, the AFL was against prohibition. It was as it was viewed as a cultural right of the working class to drink. During World War One, the AFL um, motivated by fear of government, government repression and hope of aid, often in the form of pro-AFL labor policies, had worked out an informal agreement with the U.S. government in which the AFL would coordinate with the government both so, to support the war effort and to join, quote, into an alliance to crush radical labor groups such as the Industrial Workers of the World and the Socialist Party of America. Uh, just to plug them, we already have pieces on both the industrial workers yep. of the world and the Socialist Party of America. Um, yep. The Socialist Party one would be uh, Eugene Debs after the Pullman strike part two. Yeah. Um, we just did that one couple weeks ago. Yep. So, yeah. After the war um, in 1919, Lucy Robbins Lang approached Gompers to get the approval of the AFL to support amnesty for political prison uh, prisoners in the United States. Um, I'd like to point out that that is while Eugene Debs was in prison for sedition. Yeah. Uh, the initial resolution did not pass the National Convention of the AFL that year. However, in 1920, uh, Debs was still in prison. He was running a presidential campaign from prison. After enlisting the help of lawyer Morris Hilquit, the resolution passed and the AFL became involved in petition for the release of prisoners who had been convicted under wartime emergency laws, such as the Sedition Act of 1918. Lang would go on to become the executive secretary of the Amnesty Committee for the AFL. In the pro-business environment of the 1920s, business launched a large-scale offensive on behalf of the so-called open shop, which meant that a person did not have to be a union member to be hired. AFL unions lost membership steadily until 1933. In 24, following the death of Samuel Gompers, uh, UMWA member and AFL Vice President William Green became the president of the Labor Federation. So this open shop policy, right? It sounds mm -hmm. a lot like a precursor to right to work. Yep. Yeah, definitely does. A hundred years ago, who would have thought? Right. The organizer... <laughs> What? Already starting the right to work for less. Yeah, right. So awesome. Uh, the organization endorsed pro-labor progressive Robert M. LaFollette, uh, if I said that right, I don't know, in the 1924 um, presidential election. He only carried his home state of Wisconsin. I need to see who he is really quick. So, 
Robert M. LaFollette, if I'm saying that right, uh, ran under the banner of the Progressive Party in 1924. The party advocated uh, positions such as government ownership of railroads and utilities, cheap credit for farmers, the outlawing of child labor, stronger laws to help labor unions, more protection of civil, civil liberties, an end to American imperialism in Latin America, and a referendum before any president could lead the nation into war. So, I mean, you know, obviously he's not far left, but he's definitely center left for sure. Right. Um, the campaign failed to establish a permanent independent party closely connected to the labor movement, however, and thereafter the Federation embraced ever more closely the Democratic Party, despite the fact that many union leaders remained Republicans. Herbert Hoover, in 1928, won the votes of many Protestant uh, AFL members. The Great Depression were hard times for the unions, and membership fell sharply across the country. As the national economy began to recover in 1933, so did union membership. The New Deal of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, a Democrat, strongly favored labor unions. He made sure that relief operations like the Civilian Conservation Corps did not include a training component that would produce skilled workers who would compete with union members in a still gutted market or glutted market. But I think that was a typo. I think it should have been gutted. <laughs> uh, not should have, you know what I mean, should have read as a still gutted market. Right. Anyway, smoke another one. Uh, the major legislation was the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, called the Wagner Act. It greatly strengthened organized unions, especially by weakening the company unions that many workers belonged to. It was to the members' advantage to transform a company union into a local of an AFL union, and thousands did so, dramatically boosting the membership. The Wagner Act also set up to the National Labor Relations Board, which used its power to rule in favor of unions and against the companies. However, the NLRB was later taken over by leftist elements who favored the CIO over the AFL. In the early 1930s, AFL President William Green, uh, who was president 1924 to 1952, uh, experimented with an industrial approach to organizing the automobile and steel industries. The AFL made forays into industrial unionism by chartering federal labor unions, which would organize across an industry and be chartered by the Federation, not through existing craft unions, guilds, or brotherhoods. Uh, as early as 1923, the AFL had chartered federal labor unions, including six newswriter locals that had formerly been a part of the International Typographical Union. However, in the 1930s, the AFL began chartering these federal labor unions as an industrial organizing strategy. The dues in these uh, FLUs, or federal labor unions, were kept intentionally low to make them more accessible to low-paid industrial workers. However, these low dues allowed the internationals and the federation to deny members of FLUs voting membership at conventions. Well, that's fucked up. In 1933, right. Green sent William Collins to Detroit to organize automobile workers into a federal labor uh, union. That same year, the workers at the Westinghouse plant in East Springfield, Massachusetts, 
Members of Federal Labor Union 81476 struck for recognition. In 1933, the AFL received 1,205 applications for charters for federal labor unions, 1,006 of which were granted. By 1934, the AFL had successfully organized 32,500 auto workers using the federal labor union model. Most of the leadership of the craft union internationals that made up the federation advocated for the FLUs to be absorbed into existing uh, craft union internationals and for these internationals to have a supremacy of jurisdiction. At the 1933 AFL convention in DC, John Frey of the Molders and Metal Trades pushed for craft union internationals to have jurisdictional supremacy over the FLUs. The Carpenters, headed by William Hutchinson and the IBEW, also pushed for FLUs to turn over their members to the authority of the craft internationals between 1933 and 35. <clears throat> In 1934, 100 FLUs met separately and demanded that the AFL continue to issue charters to unions organizing on an industrial basis independent of the existing craft union internationals. In 1935, the FLUs representing auto workers and rubber workers both held conventions independent of the craft union internationals. By the 1935 AFL convention, Green and the advocates of traditional craft unionism faced increasing dissension led by John L. Lewis of the coal miners, Sidney Hillman of the Amalgamated, David Dubinsky of the Garment Workers, Charles Howard of the ITU, Thomas McMahon of the Textile Workers, and Max Zeritsky of the Hat, Cap, and millinery workers, in addition to the members of the FLUs themselves. Lewis argued that the AFL was too heavily oriented towards traditional craftsmen and was overlooking the opportunity to organize millions of semi-skilled workers, especially those in industrial factories that made automobiles, rubber, glass, and steel. In 1935, Lewis led the descending unions, sorry, dissenting unions in a forming a new Congress for Industrial Organization, the CIO, within the AFL. Both the new CIO industrial unions and the older AFL crafts unions grew rapidly after 1935. In 1936, union members enthusiastically supported Roosevelt's landslide re-election Proposals for the creation of an independent labor party were rejected. Um, so I just want to point out, I suppose, um, that Roosevelt's actions, the New Deal, the National Labor Relations Board, uh, the National Labor Relations Act, all of this was designed to keep capitalism in power by giving concessions to the workers. Yeah. Um, and the AFL played a key part in that. Right. They literally did what, you know, the Democratic Party is still very well known for of starting from a compromised position there already when it comes to the things that they were calling for. Right. Um, I don't think there's too much more really that we need to go into pertaining to the AFL um in, in terms of a chronological thing but i do want to talk about some of the problems that there was in the afl racism um 
early on the AFL admitted basically anybody. Um, Gompers opened the AFL to radical and socialist workers and uh, as well as semi-skilled and unskilled workers, women, African-Americans, immigrants joined in small numbers. Uh, but by the 1890s, they only organized skilled workers and craft unions and became an organization of mostly white men. Surprise. They preached egalitarianism, but they actively discriminated against black workers. Um, the, in 1901, the AFL lobbied Congress to reauthorize the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, That's fucked. Yeah. Sexism. Uh, in most ways, the AFL's treatment of women paralleled its policy towards black workers. That says enough right there. Um, the AFL hired its first female organizer, uh, Mary Kenny O'Sullivan, only in 1892, released her after five months and did not replace her or hire another woman national organizer until 1908. You want to hey. know who, you want to know who did um, take on female organizers? The IWW. Right. Um, and benefited from it greatly. But but listen to this bullshit. Generally, the AFL viewed women workers as competition, strike breakers, or as an unskilled labor reserve that kept wages low. Yeah, we still hear some sexist motherfuckers saying shit like that to this day, and it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> right. No. No. Uh, before diving too far down that rabbit hole, I digress. But that type of shit pisses me off because it's like uh, women never should have been precluded from any of this, you know? Right. So <laughs> listen to this political action shit. Though Gompers had contact with socialists, and such as AFL co-founder Peter J. McGuire, the AFL adopted a philosophy of, quote, business unionism that emphasized unions' contribution to businesses' profits, <laughs> that emphasized unions' contribution to businesses' profits and national economic growth. I mean, that says all you really that, need to know. Um, right. Employers discovered the efficacy of labor injunctions first used with great effect by the Cleveland, as in President Grover Cleveland, administration during the Pullman strike in 1894. Mm -hmm. um, while the AFL sought to outlaw yellow dog contracts to limit the court's power to impose government by injunction and to obtain exemption from the antitrust laws that were being used to criminalize labor organizing, uh, the courts reversed what few legislative successes the labor movement won. And uh, I think that shows one of the design, well, I can't really call it a design flaw. Our system is working exactly as it is designed, and that's the problem. Right. They saw a personal benefit there in limiting themselves as unions from the fucking start there going against their own better good and sadly that's something still too common when it comes to their contracts yeah the afl's pessimistic attitude towards politics did not on the other hand prevent affiliated unions so if let me finish the sentence from pursuing their own agendas there we go 
So, okay, they didn't block affiliated unions from doing shit, but they did have to, they did make the affiliated unions pay them dues to not do anything that the affiliated unions still had to do. I mean, I, I think that they show over and over and over again that their interest isn't really in uh, defending labor. Their interest is in right. protecting businesses' profits. Um, yeah. That being said, I don't think that there's really anything else in the AFL that we need to go over. So uh, we can talk a little bit uh, more about, well, a lot of it more probably, about the CIO and why it formed. Um, because it, it largely formed <coughs> as a breakaway from the AFL, which is funny since they ended up remerging 20 years later, but. Right. The CIO, or Congress of Internet, or yeah, Congress of Industrial Organizations, was a federation of unions that organized workers in industrial unions in the United States and Canada from 1935 to 55. As I said, 20 years later. Created in 1935 by John L. Lewis, who was part of the United Mine Workers, it was originally called the Committee for Industrial Organization, but changed its name in 1938 when it broke away from the AFL. It also changed names because it was not successful with organizing unskilled workers with the AFL. The CIO supported Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal Coalition and was open to African Americans. Both the CIO and its rival, the AFL, grew rapidly during the Great Depression. The rivalry for dominance was bitter and sometimes violent. The Congress for Industrial Organization was founded on November 9, 1935, by eight international unions belonging to the AFL. In its statement of purpose, the CIO said that it had formed to encourage the AFL to organize workers in mass production industries along industrial union lines. The CIO failed to change AFL policy from within. On September 10, 1936, the AFL suspended all 10 CIO unions, two more joined in the previous year. In 1938, these unions formed the Con Congress of Industrial Organizations as a rival labor federation. Section 504 of the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 required union leaders to swear that they were not communists, which many CIO leaders refused to do. Uh, in 1965, the Supreme Court struck down this part of the law as unconstitutional. Well, no shit, I'm actually surprised they struck it down, but no shit, it's unconstitutional. Uh, in 1955, the CIO rejoined the AFL, forming the newly entity, or the new entity known as the American Federation of Labor, hyphen, Congress of Industrial Organizations, or the AFL-CIO. The CIO was born out of a fundamental dispute within the United States labor movement over whether and how to organize industrial workers. The eight union chiefs who founded the CIO were not happy with how the AFL was unwilling to work with America's manufacturing combines. Those who favored craft unionism believed the most effective way to represent workers was to defend the advantages they had secured through their skills. They focused on the hiring of skilled workers such as carpenters, lithographers, and railroad engineers in an attempt to maintain as much control as possible over the work their members did by enforcement of work rules, zealous defense of their jurisdiction to certain types of work, control over apprenticeship programs, and exclusion of less skilled workers from membership. Wow. Yeah. 
<clears throat> craft unionists were opposed to organizing workers on an industrial basis in the unions which were represented all of the production workers in a particular enterprise rather than in separate unions uh, units divided among along craft lines the proponents of industrial unionism on the other hand uh, generally believed that craft distinctions may have been appropriate in those industries in which craft unions had flourished such as constructing or construction or printing but they were unworkable in industries such as steel or auto production in their view, dividing workers in a single plant into a number of different crafts represented by separate organizations, each with its own big agenda, would weaken the workers' bargaining power and leave the majority, who had few traditional craft skills, completely unrepresented. While the AFL had always included a number of industrial unions, such as the United Mine Workers and the Brewery Workers, the most dogmatic craft unionists had a stronghold on power within the Federation by the 1930s. They used that power to squash any drive toward industrial organizing. Industrial unionism became even more fierce in the 30s when the Great Depression in the U.S. caused large membership drops in some unions, such as the United Mine Workers and the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. A number of labor leaders, particularly John L. Lewis of the United Mine Workers, came to the conclusion that their own unions would not survive while the great majority of workers in basic industry remained non-union. They started to press the AFL to change its policies in this area. The AFL, in fact, responded and added even more new members than the CIO. The AFL had long permitted the formation of federal unions which were affiliated directly with the AFL. In 1933, it proposed to use them to organize workers on an industrial basis. The AFL did not, however, promise to allow the unions to maintain a separate identity indefinitely. That meant the unions might be broken up later to distribute their members among the craft unions that claimed jurisdiction over their work. The AFL, in fact, dissolved hundreds of federal unions in late 34 and early 35. That's fucked, bro. Right. While the bureaucratic leadership of the AFL was unable to win strikes, three victorious strikes suddenly exploded onto the scene in 34. These were the Minneapolis Teamsters strike of 1934, the leadership of which included some members of the Trotskyist Communist League of America, the 1934 West Coast Longshore strike, the leadership of which included some members of the Communist Party USA, and the 1934 Toledo Auto Light Strike, which was led by the American Workers' Party. Victorious industrial unions with militant leaderships were the catalyst that brought about the rise of the CIO. The AFL authorized organizing drives in the automobile, rubber, and steel industries at its convention in 34, but gave little financial support or effective leadership to those unions. The AFL's timidity succeeded only in making it less, less credible among the workers that it was supposedly trying to organize. That was especially significant in those industries such as auto and rubber, in which workers had already achieved some organizing success at great personal risk. The dispute came to a head at the AFL's convention in Atlantic City in 1935. On October 19th, the closing day of the convention, William Hutchison, the president of the United Carpenters, made a slighting comment about a rubber worker who was delivering on or an organizing report. 
Lewis responded that Hutchison's comment was small potatoes. And the six foot three inch Hutchison replied, I was raised on small potatoes. That is why I'm so small. After some more words, during which Hutchison called Lewis a vile name, uh, Lewis punched Hutchison. The two men collapsed the table and fell on the floor throwing punches. The incident helped cement Lewis's image in the public eye as someone willing to fight for workers' right to organize. Literally. It's like, you gotta buy one, get one free sale. <laughs> Catch both hands. <laughs> Amen to that. Shortly afterward, Lewis called together Charles Howard, president of the International Typographical Union, Sidney Hillman, head of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, David Dubins uh, Dubinsky, sorry, president of the ILGWU, Thomas McMahon, head of the United Textile Workers, John Sheridan of the Mine Mill and Smelter Workers Union, Harvey Fremming of the Oil Workers Union, and Max Zaritsky of the Hatter's Cap and Millinery Workers. They discussed the formation of a new group within the AFL to carry on the fight for industrial organizing. The creation of the CIO was announced on November 9th, 1935. Whether Lewis then intended to split the AFL over this issue is debatable. At the outset, the CIO presented itself only as a group of unions within the AFL gathered to support industrial unionism rather than a group opposed to the AFL itself. The AFL leadership, however, treated the CIO as an enemy from the outset by refusing to deal with it and demanding that it dissolve. The AFL's opposition to the CIO, however, only increased the stature of the CIO and Lewis in the eyes of the industrial workers who were keen on organizing and were disillusioned with the AFL's ineffective performance. Lewis continued to denounce the AFL's policies and the CIO offered organizing support to workers in the rubber industry who went on to strike and formed the Steel Workers Organizing Committee. Com committee, jeez. Committee. Can't talk today. <laughs> the SWOC, um, in defiance of all the craft divisions that the AFL had required in past organizing events. In 1936, Lee Pressman, affiliated with the far left, became the union's general counsel until 1948. The first major industrial union to be chartered by the CIO on November 16, 1936, was the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. The subsequent growth of the UE, uh, United Electrical, was instrumental for the survival in the early days of the CIO. By the end of 36, the UE had organized the General Electric plant at Schenectady. 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 Schenectady, New York, yeah. and the UE went uh, went on to organize. 358 more local unions with contracts covering over 600,000 wor workers at uh, 1,375 plants. The CIO met with dramatic initial successes in 1937 with the UAW winning union recognition at General Motors after a tumultuous 44-day sit-down strike. We have a piece while of that. The steel Yes, yes, we do. That happened right here in Flint. Um, while the Steelworkers Organizing Committee signed a collective bargaining agreement with U.S. Steel. Those two victories, however, came about very differently. 
The CIO's initial strategy was to focus its efforts on the steel industry and then build from there. The UAW, however, did not wait for the CIO to lead it. No shit. Instead, having right. built up a membership of roughly 25,000 workers by gathering in federal unions and some locals from rival unions in the industry, the union decided to go after GM, the largest car maker of them all, by shutting down its nerve center, the production complex in Flint, Michigan. The Flint sit-down strike was a risky and illegal enterprise from the outset. The union was able to share its plans with only a few workers because of the danger that spies employed by GM would alert management in time to stop it, yet needed to be able to mobilize enough to seize physical control of GM's factories. The union, in fact, not only took over several GM factories in Flint, including one that made the dyes necessary to stamp automotive body parts and a companion facility in Cleveland, but held on to those sites despite repeated attempts by the police and the National Guard to retake them in court orders, threatening the union with ruinous fines if it did not call off the strike. So I want to take this work. moment to kind of like <laughs> maybe encourage people to go read, uh, not read, listen to our piece on the Flint sit-down strike. Um, these workers literally fought off the fucking National Guard with bolts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bolts can make a significant impact. Yeah, so I, I mean, you know, like if that intrigues you, maybe, maybe go check out our piece on the Flint sit down strike. Great. <laughs> While Lewis played a key role in negotiating the one page agreement that ended the strike with GM's promise to recognize the UAW as the exclusive bargaining representative of its employees for a six month period. UAW activists, rather than the CIO staff, led the strike. The organizing campaign in the steel industry, by contrast, was a top-down affair. Lewis, who had a particular or, uh, interest in organizing the steel industry, industry, Jesus Christ, because of its important role in the coal industry, I just did it again. What the hell is industry? Industry where UMW members worked, dispatched hundreds of organizers, maybe of whom were his past political opponents or radicals drawn from the communist-led unions that had attempted to organize the industry earlier in the 1930s to sign up members. Lewis was not particularly concerned with the political beliefs of his organizers so long as he controlled the organization. He once famously remarked when asked about the Reds and the SWOC staff, who gets the bird, the hunter or the dog? Wow. Damn. The SWOC signed up thousands of members and absorbed a number of company unions at U.S. Steel and elsewhere, but did not attempt the sort of daring strike that the UAW had pulled off against GM. Instead, Lewis was able to extract a collective bargaining agreement from U.S. Steel, which had previously been an implacable enemy of unions. <laughs> Yeah, try spitting that one out. Jeez. By pointing to the chaos and loss of business that GM had suffered by fighting the UAW. The agreement provided for union recognition, a modest wage increase in a grievance process. CIO unions signed multi-year contracts, often complicated and long with GM, U.S. Steel, and other corporations in order to minimize strikes and also to make sure employers took care of the work process. The CIO also won several significant legal battles. Hogg versus Committee 
for industrial organization 307 us 496 of uh, 1939 arose out of events in late uh, 1937. Jersey City, New Jersey, Mayor Frank Boss Hogg had used the city ordinance to prevent labor meetings in public places and stop the distribution of literature pertaining to the CIO's cause. District and circuit courts ruled in favor of the CIO. Hogg appealed to the US Supreme Court, which held in 1939 that um, Hogg's plan on political meetings violated the First Amendment right to freedom of assembly. Yep. The UAW was able to capitalize on its stunning victory over GM by winning recognition at Chrysler and similar uh, smaller manufacturers. It then focused its organizing efforts on Ford, sometimes battling company security forces as at the Battle of the Overpass on May 26, 1937. At the same time, the UAW was in danger of being torn apart by internal political rivalries. Homer Martin, the first president of the UAW, expelled a number of the union organizers who had led the Flint sit-down strike and other early drives on charges that they were communists. Oh, man, there goes that Red Scare bullshit, you know? Uh, in some cases, such as Wyndham Mortimer, Bob Travis, and Henry Krauss, those charges may have been true, in other cases, such as Victor Ruther and Roy Ruther, they're probably not. Those expulsions were reversed at the next convention of the UAW in 1939, which expelled Martin instead. Good. There's some, some fucking karma for him, you know? <laughs> he took approximately 20,000 UAW members with him to form a rival union, known for a time as the UAW-AFL. The SWOC encountered equally serious problems. After winning union recognition after a strike against Jones and Laughlin Steel, SWOC's strikes against the rest of Little Steel, I, you know, Bethlehem Steel Corporation, Youngstown Sheet and Tube, National Steel, Inland Steel American Rolling Mills, and Republic Steel, those strikes failed. In spite of support from organizations like the Catholic Radical Alliance, and that right there, that name alone sounds like um, a walking conundrum. Um, anyway, the <laughs> steelmakers offered workers the same wage increases that U.S. Steel had offered. The, uh, the in the Memorial Day massacre on ninth or. Jeez, May 30th, 1937, uh, Chicago police opened fire on a group of strikers who had attempted to picket at Republic Steel, killing 10 and seriously wounding dozens. A month and a half later, police in Massillon, Ohio, fired on a crowd, a crowd of unionists, um, resulting in three deaths when one union supporter failed to dim his headlights. Wow. After some time passed between the disputes of the AFL and CIO, the CIO began to grow larger as a union and it printed its own newspaper. I think that's important, by the way. I don't think uh, there's a lot of union publications anymore, and I think that there should be. Anyway, uh, the newspaper featured articles that were <clears throat> written by big journalists, cartoons, and other political stories. The newspaper had spread to 40% of the CIO's members and had different stories for different areas. The CIO found organizing textile workers in the South even harder. As in steel, these workers had abundant recent first-hand experience of failed organizing drives and defeated strikes, which resulted in unionists being blacklisted or worse. Uh, in addition, 
the intense antagonism of white workers towards black workers and the conservative political and religious milieu made organizing even harder. Adding to the uncertainties for the CIO was its own internal disarray. When the CIO formally established itself as a rival to the AFL in 1938, renaming itself as the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the ILGWU and the millinery workers left the CIO to return to the AFL. Lewis feuded with Hillman and Philip Murray, uh, his longtime assistant and head of the SWOC over both of the CIO's own activities and its relations with the FDR administration. Lewis finally resigned as president of the CIO in 1941 after endorsing Wendell Wilkie for president in 1940. The doldrums did not last forever. The UAW finally organized Ford in 1941 the swoc now known as the united steel workers of america won recognition in little steel in 41 through a combination of strikes and national labor relations board elections in the same year in addition after the west coast longshoremen organized in the strike led by harry bridges in 1934 they split from the international longshoremen's association in 37 and formed the international longshoremen's and warehousemen's union the ilwu then joined the cio uh, bridges became the most powerful force within the cio in california and the west the Transport Workers Union of America, originally representing the subway workers in New York, also joined, as did the National Maritime Union, made up of sailors based on the East Coast, and the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers. The AFL continued to fight the CIO, big surprise, forcing the uh, National Labor Relations Board to allow skilled trades employees and large industrial factories uh, the option to choose in what became in what came to be called global elections between representation by the cio or separate re representation by afl craft unions the cio now also faced competition moreover from a number of afl affiliates who now sought to organize industrial workers maybe they should have just listened to the cio in the first place the competition was particularly right. sharp in the aircraft industry where uaw went to head to head with the uh, International Association of Machiner Machinists, originally a craft union of railroad workers and skilled trade employees. The AFL organizing drives provided even more successful, even more success, and they uh, gained new members so fast or faster, as fast or faster than the CIO. The unemployment problem ended in the United States with the beginning of World War II as you know, stepped up wartime production created millions of new jobs and the draft pulled young men out. The war mobilization also changed the CIO's relationship with both employers and the national government. Having failed to ally with capitalist countries against fascism in the eaves of World War II, in August of 1939, the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which would later be broken by the Nazis. Um, many communists and Western parties repudiated this action and resigned their party membership in protest. American communists took the public position of being opposed to the war against Germany. The mine workers, led by Lewis with a strong pro-Soviet presence, opposed Roosevelt's re-election in 1940 and left the CIO in 1942. 
After June of 41, when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, the communists became fervent supporters of the war and sought to end the wildcat strikes that might hurt war production. The CIO, and in particular the UAW, supported a wartime no-strike pledge that aimed to eliminate not only major strikes for new contracts, but also the innumerable small strikes called by shop stewards and local union leadership to protest local or particular uh, grievances. That pledge did not, however, actually eliminate all wartime strikes. In fact, there were nearly as many strikes in 1944 as there had been in 1937. But those strikes tended to be far shorter and far less tumultuous than the earlier ones, usually involving small groups of workers over working conditions and other local concerns. The CIO did not, on the other hand, strike over wages during the war. In return for labor's no-strike pledge, the government offered arbitration to determine the wages and other terms of new contracts. Those procedures produced modest wage increases during the first few years of the war, but over time, not enough to keep up with inflation, particularly when combined with the slowness of the arbitration machinery. Yeah, even though the complaints from union members about the no-strike pledge became louder and more bitter, the CIO didn't abandon it. The mine workers, by contrast, who did not belong to either the AFL or the CIO for much of the war, engaged in a successful 12-day strike in 1943. But the CIO unions on the whole grew stronger during the war. The government put pressure on employers to recognize unions to avoid the sort of turbulent struggles over union recognition of the 1930s. While unions were generally able to obtain maintenance of membership clauses, a form of union security through arbitration and negotiation. Workers also won benefits such as vacation pay that had been available only to a few in the past while wage gaps between higher skilled and less skilled workers narrowed. The experience of bargaining on a national basis while restraining local unions from striking also tended to accelerate the trend towards bureaucracy within the larger CIO unions. Some such as the steel workers had always been centralized organizations in which authority for major decisions resided at the top. The UAW, by contrast, had always been a more grassroots organization, but it also started to try to rein in its maverick local leadership during these years. The CIO also had to confront deep racial divides in its own membership, particularly in the UAW plants in Detroit, where white workers sometimes struck the protests the promotion of black workers to production jobs. Um, we haven't done it yet, but eventually we're gonna do a piece on the Detroit riots, um, because situations like that were certainly a factor. Um, for that matter, there was riots all over the US. Um, well, I guess that was later in the 60s, which Detroit also rioted in the 60s, but I was more or less talking about things in the 40s. Um, and that isn't, you know, something that's commonly talked about. In fact, I didn't know, like, any details about it until I lived in fucking Detroit. Surprise. All right. Found out a little bit of history of the city from the locals. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, it also worked on this issue in shipyards in Alabama. Surprise. Mass transit in Philadelphia and steel plants in Baltimore. The CIO leadership, particularly those in more left unions, such as the packing house workers, the UAW, the NMW, uh, and the transport workers undertook serious efforts to suppress hate strikes. 
to educate their membership, and to support the Roosevelt administration's tentative efforts to remedy racial discrimination in war industries through the Fair Employment Practices Commission. Those unions contrasted their relatively bold attack on the problem with the timidity and racism of the AFL. The CIO unions were less progressive in dealing with sex discrimination in the wartime industry, which now employed many more women workers in non-traditional jobs. Uh, some unions who had represented large numbers of women workers before the war, such as the UE and the food and tobacco workers, had fairly good records of fighting discrimination against women. Others often saw them as merely wartime replacements for the men in the armed forces. Wow. I mean, I guess to be fair, though, like, it's, I, I mean, our society is still steeped in sexism and racism. So I guess it's not surprised that it, uh, it's not a surprise that it was more extreme 80 years ago than it is now. Right. Right. They, they were still, well, still are, but back then they were very heavily pissed off about the fact that, oh my God, women in the workforce, you know. Um, I mean, they're taking our bet, jobs. I'm willing um, to bet that most of the <laughs> troops that were driving the tanks that these women were building didn't give a shit that they were built by women. I'm just fucking saying. Right. Right. They were just thankful to have supplies coming in. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> they don't give a shit about the shape of the genitals of who's building the shit. <laughs> they just need their tanks. Uh the end of the war meant the end of the no strike pledge and a wave of strikes as workers sought to make up the ground that they had lost, particularly in wages during the war. The UAW went on to strike against GM in November of 1945. The steel workers, UE and packing house workers struck in January of 46. Murray, as head of both the CIO and the steel workers, wanted to avoid a wave of mass strikes in favor of high-level negotiations with employers, with government intervention to balance wage demands with price controls. That project failed, though, when employers showed that they were not willing to accept the wartime status quo, but instead demanded broad management rights clauses to reassert their workplace authority. While the new Truman administration proved unwilling to intervene on labor side and i don't know about you but that totally makes my brain go to cartman on south park all like what's that right the uaw took a All different sense of authority <laughs> right exactly uh rather than involve the federal government it wanted to bargain directly with gm over management issues uh such as the prices it charges for its cars and went on strike for 113 days over these and other issues. The union eventually settled for the same wage increase that the steelworkers and the UE had gotten in their negotiations. GM not only did not concede any of its managerial authority, but never even bargained over the UAW's proposals over its pricing policies. That's hmm. fucking unsurprising but disappointing and i, I think yeah. that these uh this this era is really when we started to see the corporatization uh or you know company buyout <laughs> essentially of these unions um which i'm sure we're gonna do a piece on yeah. on that more specifically too at some point but we'll see Right, there's, there's so much to delve into there, especially when it concerns how the unions started getting run in the same manner as our government, 
which is, of course, produced problems. Right. Who'd have thought? <laughs> right. These strikes were qualitatively different from those waged over union recognition in the 30s. Employers did not try to hire strike breakers to replace their employees, while the unions kept a, light, a tight lid on picketers to maintain order and decorum, even as they completely shut down some of the largest enterprises in the United States. In other words, winning over hearts and minds or, or whatever, um, instead of burning shit down, they're like, oh, well, if we peacefully hold our signs, we'll get what we want. And then imagine that the uh, unions kind of accomplish less and less over time after uh after hitting a peak but anyway we'll get to that um we will Indeed. the cio's major <laughs> organizing drive of this era operation dixie uh aimed at the textile workers of the american south was a complete failure the cio was reluctant to confront jim crow segregation laws and i mean frankly the union should have been involved with that fight and the fact that they weren't is, right. a, is a disgrace to the, the name of unions. An injury to one is an injury to all. End of fucking story. Anyway. Um, Agreed. Although the steelworkers' southern outpost and the steel industry remained intact, the CIO and the union movement as a whole remained marginalized in the Deep South and surrounding states. In July 43, the CIO formed the first ever polit political action committee in the United States the CIO pack to help elect Roosevelt. And uh, that might've been the first, but political action committees and super PACs are still a problem significantly uh, with our political system today. And I just wanted to point out that that is a tactic that was originally used by unions and now it's used by all sorts of special interest groups. So uh, maybe that was a misstep by the unions. <clears throat> In 46, the Republican Party took control of both the House and the Senate. That Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which made organizing more difficult. Wow. And then we find out when the Republicans became anti-labor. <laughs> uh, gave the state's authority to pass right-to-work laws, which are still being passed uh, today. And uh, there's still a serious problem, right-to-work for less. And outlawed certain types of strikes, such as wildcat strikes, and secondary boycotts. Um, speaking of secondary boycotts, uh, I just want to encourage everybody to stand in solidarity with the um, Frito-Lay workers that are striking in Topeka, Kansas. Um, they have called for a secondary boycott, which is illegal, but who gives a fuck? Do it anyway. Don't buy PepsiCo's products. Right. Anyway. I mean... Uh, there's no real reason to buy them in the first place. They're all unhealthy garbage, but you know, now you have more reason to not buy them. Right. But uh, I'd like to point out that the Teamsters um, that are that organize Pepsi um, have called for a secondary a secondary boycott, I believe, for the first time since they've since they were made illegal in 1946. So I'm just saying Damn. that's the state of our. Uh, labor yeah um it, it also volumes right it also required all union officers to sign an affidavit that they were not communist party members in order for the union to bring a case before the national labor relations board wow that's fucked too 
Yeah. That's really fucked. They had no right to do that. That's the same type of shit that, you know, we were talking about earlier right. within the so, AFL. Yeah, well, I know. mean, the AFL was basically anti-communist from the outset. But, like, right. um, whether or But as far as, like, making people not, sign affidavits. Oh, yeah. Right, the but the I whole, mean, we're like, going to make you sign an affidavit to swear that you're not a communist in order to, you know, have you remain having a voice in your own labor rights as a union member that's fucked yeah yeah um this affidavit requirement later declared unconstitutional no fucking shit by the united states supreme court was the first sign of serious trouble ahead for a number of communists in the cio um so i i, I guess i just wanted to point out though that the uaw was part of the cio the uaw yeah was largely organized by communists and socialists. So, I mean, these laws were uh, directly an attack to that. And um, obviously the point was to cut the balls off of the union. Right. If they cut out the communist influences and socialist influences there, then they're making them start from a compromised position when it comes to everything concerning speaking up for workers' rights. That's the whole fucking point of socialism and communism is workers' rights. Right. Um, In 47, the CIO gave financial and moral support to the National Federation of Telephone Workers during the national 1947 telephone strike. I'm going to write that down. I didn't know there was a telephone strike. I would imagine that was at that time almost entirely women. Probably. I'm curious about that one now, too. Do a piece on that. All right. I wrote that down. Okay. Uh, Robert R. McCormick, publisher of the Chicago Tribune, who with some reluctance supported Thomas E. Dewey, the governor of New York, and the 1944 Republican presidential nominee, claimed that the CIO had become the dominant faction in the National Democratic Party. Uh, This is a quote here from him. Uh, They call it the Democratic National Convention, but obviously it is the CIO Convention. Wow. Um, Franklin D. Roosevelt is the candidate of the CIO and the communists because they know if elected, he will continue to put the government of the United States at their service at home and abroad. The CIO is in the saddle and the Democrat donkey under whip and spur is meekly taking the road to communism and atheism. (laughs) I can't even say that with a straight face. I I mean, just for some context here, though. As, as Robert R. McCormick is going on this fucking rant, okay, about FDR being a communist. FDR mm-hmm. took ideas from communists to prevent riots, but right. FDR was entirely focused on saving capitalism. Yeah, he was, if anything, a social dem, you know, of wanting some basic support programs but still being pro-capitalism as fuck, you know? Um, But continuing his quote here, he'd said, everybody knows that Roosevelt is the communist candidate, but even the communists cannot be sure where their place will be if he wins. 
His purpose is to overthrow the Republic for his own selfish ambitions, but it is the duty of every American to oppose the great deceiver. But, oh my god. Yeah, wow. fucking drama queen so, shit right there. there. There is a line that I want to reread because it's fairly relevant here. Everybody knows that Roosevelt is the communist candidate. He did get the support of a lot of communists by taking their ideas, you know, and watering them down to prop up capitalism. But when, what it comes down to is that your average communist is going to support any improvement to the material conditions of the people, even if that means temporarily right. propping up capitalism. Uh, people were dying and they were sick of fucking seeing it. Right. Uh, the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 penalized unions whose officers failed to sign statements that they were not members of the Communist Party. Many communists held power in the CIO unions and few did so in the AFL, obviously. <laughs> the most affected unions were the ILWU, the UE, the TWU, the United Public Workers, and the Fur and Leather Workers. Other communists held senior staff positions in a number of other unions. The leftists had an uneasy relationship with Murray while he headed the CIO. He mistrusted the radicalism of some of their positions and was innately far more sympathetic to anti-communist organizations such as the Association of Catholic Trade Unionists. He also believed, however, that making anti-communism a crusade would only strengthen labor's enemies and the rival AFL at a time when labor unity was most important. And I'd just like to point out, you can see right here the roots of where they tried to conflate religious views with their political ones and totally did it wrong because if they were actually following Jesus's example they would have been fucking hardcore socialists and communists not pro-capitalists but the fact that they tried to use that as a manner to manipulate the situation is inherently fucked and you still see the results of it today yeah yeah absolutely uh, Murray might have let the status quo continue, even while Walter Ruther and others within the CIO attacked communists and their unions, if the CPUSA had not chosen to back Henry A. Wallace's Progressive Party campaign for president in 1948. That, and an increasingly bitter division, were whether the CIO should support the Marshall Plan. Um, brought Murray to the conclusion that peaceful coexistence with communists within the CIO was impossible. Uh, the Marshall Plan, for context here, was an American initiative passed in 1948 for foreign aid to Western Europe. The U.S. transferred over $13 billion in economic recovery programs to Western European economies at the end of World War II. Um, so, I mean... Basically, the argument uh, probably would have been like, well, why can't we spend $13, or $13 billion in economic recovery programs here? Probably. Um, and I mean, think about it, in 1948 dollars. Right. The spending right. power well, there. Well, yeah. And I mean, like, also think about the fact that, you know, there was no, it, that it specifies Western countries. So everything that was occupied by Russia, Russia had to fix, right? And they did that right. and some. 
without any help from the U.S. So I think that the U.S. probably sent that just so, you know, Western Europe could keep up with the USSR. Right. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, after the 1948 election, the CIO took the fight one step further, expelling the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the International Union of Mines, Mill and Smelter Workers, uh, Farm Equipment Union, the Food and Tobacco Workers, and the International Fur and Leather Workers Union. After a series of internal trials in the first few months of 1950 while creating a new union, the International Union of Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers, which later merged with the Communication Workers of America to replace the United Electric, Radio, and Machine Workers, the UE, which had left the CIO. Ruther succeeded Murray, who died in 1952 as the head of the CIO. William Green, who had headed the AFL since the 1920s, died the same month, and Ruther began discussing the merger uh, of the two organizations with George Meany, Green's successor as head of the AFL the next year. Most of the critical differences that once separated the two organizations had faded since the 1930s. Yeah, because they both became anti-communist. Right. The AFL had not only embraced industrial organizing, but included industrial unions, such as the International Association of Machinists, that had become as large as the UAW or the Steelworkers. The AFL had a number of advantages in those negotiations. It was, for one thing, twice as large as the CIO. The CIO was, for its part, once again facing internal rivalries that threatened to seriously weaken it. Ruther was spurred towards merger by the threats from David J. McDonald, Murray's successor as president of the Steelworkers, who disliked Ruther intensely, insulted him publicly, and flirted with disaffiliation from the CIO. While Ruther set out a number of conditions for merger with the AFL, such as constitutional provisions supporting industrial unionism, guarantees against racial discrimination, and internal procedures to clean up corrupt unions, his weak bargaining position formed him to compromise most of these demands. Although the unions that made up the CIO survived, and in some cases thrived, as members of the newly created AFL-CIO the CIO as an organization was folded into the AFL-CIO's industrial union department. Now the AFL-CIO is made up of 56 national and international labor unions with 12 and a half million members. Um, so then the, the, we're obviously into the merger at this point. So we'll talk a little bit about the AFL-CIO. Um, as she just stated, it's a very big union at this point. Um, they're, they're behind a lot of the get out the vote campaigns in major elections. Uh, for example, in the 2010 midterms, it sent out 28.6 million pieces of mail. Members received a slate card with a list of union endorsements matched to the member's congressional district. district along with a personalized letter from President Obama emphasizing the importance of voting. Um, 
And, and I mean, I, I guess to be fair, I, I used to be a lot more optimistic about electoral politics <coughs> as well, but like they're not doing anything in their community. They're not they're not doing any real political work. They're just doing surface level feel good work. Right. That's the problem. And I, and all I talk mean, and no action gets absolutely fuck all done. Right. Uh, it remains a major player on the liberal side of national politics. Okay, well, I mean, it says right there that they support capitalism. I mean, we're not talking about the dictionary definition of liberal. We're talking about the political definition of liberal. Um, right. With a great deal of activity in, in lobbying, it says grassroots organizing. And I'm not saying that some union affiliates don't do grassroots organizing because they do. But the thing is though, is that it all comes down to liberal organizations, fundraising and recruiting for candidates. Who do those candidates, or what party do those candidates belong to? Nine times out of 10, it's not the Green right. Party or the People's Party, it's the Democratic Party. Um, yeah. So, I mean, and they have built a, a, a coalition of alliances. Um, the Working for America Institute started out as a department of the AFL-CIO. In, uh, established in 1958, it was previously known as the Human Resources Development Institute. John Sweeney renamed the department and spun it off as an independent organization in 1998 to act as a lobbying group, there's another fucking red flag, to promote economic development, develop new economic policies, and lobby Congress on economic policy. Now, the, the thing is, is the, the policies that they're promoting, do they actually help the working class or do they help the people in power? And I'm not, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I'm just saying that you should look into that yourself. Right. Um, so other organizations that are allied with the AFL-CIO include the Alliance for Retired Americans, Solidarity Center, Americans' Rights at Work, International Labor Communications Associations, uh, Jobs with Justice, Labor Heritage Foundation, Labor and Working Class History Association, National Day Labor Organizing Network, United Students Against Sweatshops, Working America, Working for America Institute, and the <coughs> Organizing Collaborative. Um, the Sorry. AFL was involved in the civil rights struggle um, very late on, honestly. Um, so in 1961, MLK Jr. gave a speech titled, If the Negro Wins, Labor Wins, to the organization's convention in Florida. King hoped for a coalition between civil rights and labor that would improve the situation for the entire working class by ending race, racial discrimination. However, King also criticized the AFL-CIO for its tolerance of unions that excluded black work, workers. Uh, he said, I would be lacking in honesty if I did not point out that the labor movement of 30 years ago did more in that period for civil rights than labor is doing today. Our combined strength is potentially enormous, but we have not used a fraction of it for our own good or for the needs of society as a whole. King and the AFL-CIO diverged further in 1967 when King announced his opposition to the Vietnam War, which the AFL strongly supported. The AFL-CIO endorsed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So I, I guess what I want to point out here is that um, 
you know, they sure were quick to jump behind his his peaceful vision, right? His his vision of nonviolence. But they didn't get behind the poor people's campaign. Are you fucking kidding me? Doesn't surprise me. And look at what it says next. In the 21st century, the AFL-CIO has been criticized by campaigners against police violence for its affiliation with the International Union of Police Associations. Now, who is who is constantly being that fucking strong arm to, you know, squash the poor who come out and protest? The cops. Um, so... You know, I mean, they're they're used as that tool to so, to try to shut down protests. This, to this listen day. to this deflection, this this deflective ass bullshit. On May thirty first, twenty twenty, the AFL CIO offices in DC were set on fire during the George Floyd uh, George Floyd protests taking place in the city. In response, AFL CIO President Richard Trumka condemned both the murder of George Floyd and the destruction of the uh, offices. Um, which, you know, like he's equating property and human life there, first of all, and right. did not address demands to end the organization's affiliation with the International Union of Police Associations. Of course not. They're making money off of that. It's union dues. So I guess ultimately what I'm getting at here is I'm not going to encourage anybody not to get involved with the AFL-CIO because they probably have a very high success rate of actually organizing the workplace that you're trying to work organize. But don't toe the line. Open your mouth and say this isn't enough. Um, right. You know, Call them out on their shit and change it from the inside because this type of shit right here uh, is intolerable. They should have, you know, dissolved their connection with the fucking International Union of Police Associations on the spot if they gave a fuck about life. The fact that they tried to compare life itself with property damage is intolerable. So if you're going to go in there, call them out for shit like that. Yeah. Um, or if you're so, already a member, call them out for the shit. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> there's, there's just one more thing that I want to touch on before we, you know, wrap this up. But in August 2013, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union disaffiliated from the AFL-CIO. And if I remember correctly, by the way, the ILWU is uh, the main organization that was trying to organize... Um, Amazon workers, and I believe it was Alabama. Um, so yeah. note, note that they went with the people that left the, uh, the AFL-CIO instead of the AFL-CIO, even though they're a bigger, more powerful organization. What do they do with right. that power? Um, the ILWU said that members of other AFL-CIO unions were crossing its picket lines, and the AFL-CIO did nothing to stop it. That's fucked. Yeah. The ILWU also cited the AFL-CIO's willingness to compromise on key policies such as labor law reform, immigration reform, and healthcare reform. Uh, the Longshoremen's Union said it would become an independent union. And I think Don't we're better off for it. Um, and yeah. I think that over time, as more and more people see that uh, these liberalized unions don't do uh much for the working class i think we're gonna see more and more and more um uh, so from 1955 until 2005 the afl's 
uh, member unions represented nearly all unionized workers in the United States. Several large unions split away from AFL-CIO and formed to the rival Change to Win Federation in 2005. Um, a number of those unions have since reaffiliated, and many locals of Change to Win are either part of or work with their local central labor uh, labor councils. So. Um, I guess what we're seeing here is that when the AFL-CIO doesn't do what it needs to do, groups leave. And they might work with them in the future, you know, like, oh, hey, you're driving to organize this workplace, we'll support that. Well, no shit, that's called solidarity. Right. Um, there also, there needs to be accountability there of, like, if you want our support, then you need to get your shit together, ethically speaking. Yeah. And um, I think that um, we're going to see more of these affiliated unions ending their affiliations or stepping away from the AFL-CIO. I mean, shit, we're in the middle of a, a wildcat general strike right now. Right. Literally. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I don't know. That's about all I got on the AFL-CIO. Um, it's more of the AFL than the CIO. Right. It, no they didn't just <laughs> swallow it up. They have committed erasure of, you know, everything that the CIO was representative of when that group first split away from the AFL. Right. Um... All right, well, I guess uh, I'd just like to point out, you know, you can join us tomorrow for our part 10 of the Black Panther Party series. Um, and you can join us Monday for uh, our current event stream, Tuesday for the Communist Manifesto piece. And next Wednesday will be the Emma Goldman piece, as well as obviously Thursday will be part 11 the Black Panther Party series. Um, so by all means, if you're interested, uh, come back and we'll see you then. Is there anything you want to plug or want to briefly touch on before we wrap it up? Well, can you pop that page up that has all of our contact info on there? Our website is www.forwearemany.org. So you can always find us there regardless of getting silenced on other social media <laughs> um on facebook we have the page as well as the education group and the mutual aid group on twitter we are at uh, for we are many two on instagram tiktok and youtube you can find us at for we are many podcast and if you would like to support what we're doing we can be found also at www.patreon.com slash for we are many. If you would like to participate, be on the panel. If you would like to um, write a column, if you'd like to contribute video, anything along those lines, touch base, base with us at for we are many podcast at gmail.com or message us on Facebook. Um, speaking of podcasts, which is obviously the whole point of this whole thing. I wanted to point out that we had our second busiest week um, so far this last week. 
um, on the podcast platform, which, um, you know, just to start the, the list, I suppose, um, our, we're on Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify, um, as well as CastBox and Overcast and some other uh, lesser known platforms as well. That's what's up. I've been digging it, seeing the stats you've been popping in the group chat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Building. I, yeah, for sure. Um, our website, we had our fifth busiest week ever, but of course, uh, you know, it's going to take us some time to build back up. It took us time to build the first time, and then we dropped the ball on it. So um, we're getting back up to where we were in March and April there. So that's encouraging. And uh, the podcast itself is performing um, more steadily week to week than it was even in April and May or March and April. So there's definitely growth happening. And I I would just want to thank everybody for being a part of it. Great. Thank you for watching. Thank you for sharing. If you have any ideas, about things you would like to see us delve into, let us know. And we'll put that on the list of upcoming shows as well. Indeed. Thank you. Uh, Solidarity.